This is Episode 9, Modernizing Risk Management in the New Era of Global Risk, with Corey Bergman, Co-Founder and VP of Product at Factal. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, a podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome to the Business of Intelligence, the podcast that explores the field of private sector intelligence and how intelligence helps organizations navigate risk and realize opportunity. Today, our guest is Corey Bergman, co-founder and VP of product at Factal, and we'll be talking about modernizing risk management in the new era of global risk. So, Michael, we're back again with our second episode of 2022. I think it's a great follow-up to the one that we just did with Alethea Group founder and CEO, Lisa Kaplan. Shout out to Lisa. But first of all, always great to be with you. And once again, we had a lot of fun with this one. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I think it was a great follow-up to Lisa Kaplan's, as you said. And uh, I think Corey really made some great points. I mean, we're, we're talking about his latest project he's working on, on climate change. But, uh, you know, one of the big takeaways I have is, you know, even though Corey's never actually been in the public sector uh, intelligence field, I mean, he really brings a lot of uh, knowledge and has a good mindset when it comes to intelligence gathering, validating and vetting information. So uh, I, I really enjoyed having him on the show. Yeah, Corey's lifelong journalist, lifelong uh, member of the news business, if you will. It feels like you're talking to an intelligence practitioner when you're talking to Corey. And just to give everyone a sneak preview, we'll talk about this in the episode, but Factal has a really great thought leadership piece coming out that that Michael, you alluded to. It's on the dual disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change and how this has really challenged risk management, crisis, resiliency teams in, in really unprecedented ways. So number of lessons learned in this piece. And essentially what we do in the episode is we break each one down, talk about some key takeaways. Um, you know, what, what did Corey and the team really learn from this piece and just talk about how we could apply it going forward. So really excited for everyone to hear this. Anything else you want to say in terms of a, of a preview or should we just get right to it? Now nah, let's get to it and uh, look forward to being back again soon with more episodes. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, everybody. And now tune in as we chat with Corey Bergman on modernizing risk management and the new era of global risk. Corey, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Listen, I wanted to start off by telling a quick story, and then I've got a couple of follow-up questions for you. So this was a few summers ago, beautiful day in Chicago. It was a Friday, I'll never forget. And for whatever reason, we only had a half day of work. So I was with a friend of mine. We were down on the Chicago Riverwalk. And for anybody that has not been there, it's just a beautiful space, restaurants, bars, et cetera. We were having lunch. And I thought I was done for the day. And I got a ping on my phone, and it was an app uh, called breakingnews.com. And I quickly learned that we had a very, very serious incident in one of our locations in Europe. And so, unfortunately, my day was over because I had to go back to work and uh, figure out what was going on. But the, the key takeaway for everyone listening is 
breakingnews.com was just a phenomenal resource for practitioners in the field. I, I honestly don't know what I would have done without it. I certainly wouldn't have learned about this particular incident. I remember I was the first person to learn about it even before those folks working in the actual market. So, you know, just a phenomenal resource. I know that breaking news had to shut down eventually. So my first question is, you know, let's talk about Factal. Let's talk about how did Factal come to be? You know, how did you land there? How did this come about? And for those listening that might not be familiar, could you just tell us a little bit about Factal? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Ryan. And I think I know what incident you're, you're referring to, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, Breaking News uh, was a, a unit of NBC News that was founded back in 2009. And it was about a different approach to Breaking News that we, instead of publishing it as coming from the, the media brand, it was looking at all the news organizations that were reporting breaking news and all the breaking news we could find in social media and then boiling that down, verifying it uh, and publishing it very quickly. And then you could get in the app, you could get whatever's nearby breaking uh, as well. And so it was something that was quite popular. But unfortunately, if you're a brand advertiser like BMW or whoever, you're probably not going to want to put your ads next to terror attacks. Uh, and so the advertising piece did not uh, did not do so well. So NBC decided to shut, to shut us down. But we had such an overwhelming uh, amount of support from uh, really everybody, individuals who, you know, sent us emails about situations they were in, uh, you know, hiding in, in back rooms as mass shootings were happening to security operations, to, you know, government uh, organizations that were relying on it. And so we had a lot of folks that really pushed us and said, hey, if you create a, instead of a free version, uh, if you created a paid version, we would pay for it. And so we, st we started talking to a few of those companies uh, on the security side and sort of beta testing and and they enjoyed what they saw and we got we we made we made the first version and got funded and that became factal and so uh what factal does is the backbone's still there right if there's breaking news around the world we'll find it we'll verify it we'll link the original source we'll tell you about it but then we've layered on all these enterprise features that allow you to determine the proximity to any of your locations around the world to dip, to slice and dice breaking news by different topics, by different things that matter to your organization, uh, by being able to collaborate internally in the platform. And we have that app uh, again. And so we're very happy to have the app back for those who, who really missed it. It's such a great story because I remember vividly that groundswell of support and I mean, sadness, to be honest, that, you know, breaking news went away. And so it's just it's just great that you you got that feedback and were able to, to go on and, and build Factal. Just a quick follow up before we move on to the, the next question. I mean, I know you've had a really great career in, in the news business and journalism. What drew you to this career? How did you get started? Yeah, it's it's odd. I my, I didn't know what degree to get when I was younger, and my dad said you got to get a business degree, and so okay, I went and I got you know an MBA. But my my true passion turned out to be uh, I love computers, and and uh, my mom was in, was interning at a television station. She invited me in one day, and I saw all the technical gear in the studio, and I was I was I just loved it, and so I started working in TV news, and um, at a young age at eighteen, and so I remember driving around. 
when I was just in a technical role, I wanted to work in the newsroom, but uh, in my spare time, I would drive around in my pickup truck with the scanner on. And whenever there was a shooting or a big fire somewhere, uh, I would drive there and then I would call the television station and tell them what's going on. So the breaking news DNA runs deep uh, and that's become uh, exactly what I've done for my entire career. Wow, that's that that is amazing. Thanks for that. So, listen, I know that you and, and the team at Factal, you all are working on this thought leadership piece. We, we can't wait for it to come out, but it's on the dual disruption of the COVID nineteen pandemic and climate change, which I know sounds really scary, but you know, and how this has challenged risk management, crisis resiliency teams, in really unprecedented ways. So. You know, thinking about COVID and climate change together, I know that doesn't sound too positive, but I think there were some real learnings from this this piece. We're going to talk about those in detail, but just from a big picture, what's the silver lining in all this in terms of what you found? Yeah, to try to put a positive spin on this, the well, COVID has been obviously just massively disruptive for all of us, and uh, and now it's starting to move into uh, knock on wood, a more of an endemic stage, which doesn't mean it goes away, but it means it's it's less unpredictable. Uh, and at the same time, you have climate change, which has always been kind of like this future threat that's that's ah, out there. Yeah, sure, the oceans are going to rise, uh, and then we've seen all this just random severe weather just coming uh, at a greater frequency and a greater severity and places we never expected. And so we're in this weird place where one disruption is beginning to ease, at least apparently, while another one is really kicking into gear. And so what have we learned from COVID uh, at our companies? How does that help us adapt and respond to risk events? And how can we apply that to the new world of climate change that's now here? Yeah, that's great. Uh, Michael, I know you're going to lead off with another question, but just a, a quick note. One of the fire events that you talk about in Colorado, I was actually caught up in that. So when I was reading that, I was starting to get the chills because I had this personal experience of uh, of a kid from the Midwest who never really experienced major fires. And uh, I was trying to get to the airport, sort of got caught in the middle. And it's just yeah, firsthand experience of how severe these weather events are these days. And they seem to be just happening at such a rapid pace. But um, Michael, go ahead. I know you're going to lead off with the next one. Yeah, Corey, how are you doing? Thanks again for being on the show. Appreciate it. Hey, man. Uh, so, so hypothetical question for you. We've been chatting a few months now, and let's just say I'm part of an intelligence function or some type of risk manager. COVID, we're starting to agree, is at the endemic stage at this point. And people might be thinking climate change. I mean, that only really matters to those dealing with ESG issues. Tell me, why why is that person wrong? Yeah, it's just it's become an operational thing. You know, I think you can look at, it's been talked about for years, all the sustainability and brand reputation, everything attached to it. I'm not even talking about any of that. I'm saying, what is impacting your operations today? And if you look at the NOAA has this, you know, they keep track of the billion dollar disasters in the U.S. And if you look back and you look at the curve of those disasters, sure, population has increased over the time. So it increases the money somewhat, but it's it's adjusted for inflation. And the storm has just gotten so much more impactful. So back in that, like 1980 to 1990, you're looking at two, three storms a year. And then in 2020, it hit a record, right? It hit a record at 22. And then last year it was 20. So the numbers are just going straight up. And so, you know, I think everyone sort of anticipated climate change as being, oh, it's when the oceans rise. Uh, it's when the icebergs melt. Um, but what's happening sooner rather than later is just these crazy severe storms that, for example, if you're in California, how you've had to deal with wildfires alone has been very transformational. 
Uh, just real quick for our audience, uh, I, I made a, a New Year's resolution to break down uh, acronyms. ESG is environmental, social, and governmental. So uh, just throwing that out. But no, great answer, Corey. And then and follow up on that. In this new era of global risk and, and looking through a sneak preview of your report, you found that risk teams are adapting and realize a number of different lessons learned. We're going to go ahead and dissect this piece by piece, but let's go ahead and start with uh, a lesson learned regarding plan for higher intensity events in surprising places. Yeah. And, you know, you think back just in the last year, you've got, you know, Hurricane Ida, for example, here's a storm that just went up the coast and parked over Metro New York, New Jersey, and dumped a bunch of rain and created flash floods that they've just never seen before. And, you know, historically, the the storms have gone up the coast or arced over through the coast like Hurricane Sandy. So a completely new dynamic there. Uh, You've got the, you know, as Ryan mentioned, the Boulder County uh, wildfire was was something that was just very unprecedented of, of, you know, sweeping from a grassland into a, not just the, the edge of the subdivision, but jumping across the roof, the roofs of all these homes and, and destroying a thousand of them, which is just you know, mind blowing. You never would expect that fire behavior there. And so there's all these events that are just happening in, in different places at different levels of severity that really we haven't anticipated. And so it kind of makes you think about what are my risk plans? What have I been planning for over the years? Typically risk planning and disaster planning has been sort of an incremental adjustment year over year. But now, if we're reaching a new phase where just there's just a new dynamic, how do we step back and start rethinking our plans so we can capture some of these things in advance? Yeah, I think that's a great lesson. I've got a quick follow-up that maybe speaks to this. So after reading through this thought leadership piece, there's another quote that really stood out for us. And so I'm just going to read this real quick and then I'll ask the question. Emergency planners didn't anticipate these disasters because they occurred in unusual places with rare behaviors at unprecedented extremes, end quote. So, you know, the key takeaway for me with regards to a lot of this is it seems to be maybe a failure of imagination or a lack of creativity in trying to foresee some of these things. So what role do you think Intel practitioners can play in terms of addressing that, whether it's scenario planning or or something else? Absolutely. Uh, You know, and I think, I think there is, you know, there, you can you can take a look at what's happened recently, and I think apply, you know, projections from there. Um, so, for example, the Northwest heat wave, which also was in BC, were just an unprecedented thing. I, I live up in Seattle. <clears throat> we don't have air conditioning. <clears throat> excuse me, and none of the people I know have air conditioning now. They're buying them. And there's no you know policies for outdoor work, and suddenly it's 108 degrees outside, uh, and so that's, you know, you can start applying sort of higher temperatures and drought to different scenarios and come up with some interesting uh, disaster scenarios. The thing that's also interesting to note is a lot of these things happen concurrently. Um, and so you might have unexpected secondary effects or tertiary effects of something that's occurring, uh, kind of like the, you know, the, the studies on uh, aircraft and the aircraft accidents find that the average number of, of links in a chain, things that actually cause the accident is greater than four. So it's not just one or two things, it's several things. And so kind of thinking that through and how that connects and, uh, you know, cybersecurity plays into this as well. What if there's a cyber attack that's timed to a power outage um, and how that might play out? If you got IT folks working from home and suddenly they don't have power, they don't have internet and your company's hacked, how are they going to respond? There's all these different sort of if-thens that uh, I think, you know, were before something rather unheard of and now very plausible. Another lesson you identified, and we kind of 
think started the discussion there was the need to retool for accelerated speed of events. And I mean, whether it's the speed of the severe weather events or how they're breaking crisis management response plans, the, the spread of Omicron, and of course, the speed and volume of information as critical events unfold. Uh, what are some ways intelligence teams can retool for speed, especially considering the pace most are already moving at now? Yeah, isn't it crazy how much faster? I mean, it just, you know, that we, Ryan, you're talking about the Boulder County fire going to the airport. I mean, that was just nuts how quickly that thing moved. And the sheriff said that they, you know, the firefighters weren't doing firefighting. All the firefighters were doing is driving a, ahead of the fire and evacuating everybody as quickly as they can. Um, you know, and then you've got, as you mentioned, Mike, the, the uh, you know, Omicron comes in and just moves so quickly that all the travel bans in place were just pointless. Um, and things are just happening at an accelerated speed. So it's really starting to look at, you know, how you work internally. For example, if you have lots of, you know, a lot of senior folks have to sign off on something before it happens, that should probably be streamlined. Um, and so really trying to figure out how to, to accelerate just how you're, you you operate in internally. And I think that, um, you know, there's several, there's several ideas or one, one thing that we focus on at Factal is, is typically not a lack of information. It's a lack of information clarity, right? That's what slows you down when you're getting bombarded by things and you don't know what's true, or you're hearing some chatter about something that maybe you, that you don't know if it's true. You're not going to react to it until you have some sort of credible uh, information there. And so how can we get to credible data, credible information, faster so we can respond faster. Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is just about you know, distributing information. Is it all need to be you know, held in a, in a centralized fashion? Could it be more distributed to more people in more places uh, in real time uh, to help to, uh, for us all to be more resilient? Yeah, those are great points. And I mean, I think we're, we're seeing that here locally where I am in Northern Virginia, D.C. area with the, the flash snowstorm we had a few weeks back where it shut the road down for almost 24 hours. And, you know, I think these are great points you're hitting because that's exactly what the, the local emergency response is going to have to go back and retool a bit. Yeah, I can't stop thinking about this fire. I mean, as somebody who grew up worried about tornadoes, I thought that was the worst thing imaginable. But, you know, seeing this fire actually jump, like you mentioned, Corey. And, and the other thing, I don't know that we, we mentioned yet, there was like 100 plus mile an hour winds. So the fire was literally just jumping, you know, across fields from house to house. I mean, it was just in, in, insane. But, you know, talking about the accelerated speed of events, I think one of the things that has to change is, and you, you touched on this, is so many large organizations have been operating under this sort of need to know paradigm when it comes to sharing critical information. And so I think there's going to be a, a change management piece in a lot of organizations where you're going to have to try to break that down. And intelligence and risk practitioners are going to need to be at the forefront of trying to, to help usher that change management piece in. So, um, and I, I think we'll circle back to this here in a couple of lessons too, but go ahead. Were you going to say a follow up? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, I was talking about that Boulder County fire. If you've seen that video of the folks uh, in the, coming out of that Costco, um, there's this quote from the one guy who drove up to the Costco park, saw the smoke in the distance. Well, yeah, it looks like there's a fire over there. Goes in the Costco. Five minutes later, they're evacuating and people walk outside into this just horizontal smoke wind with you know little objects flying through the air uh, with, you know, sheriffs and firefighters yelling at everybody to get out. It's just, how did that happen in five minutes? It's just mind boggling. 
I, I'm, I'm laughing because you're bringing me back to my childhood as a New Yorker in Texas for the first time and seeing a tornado in the distance and, and getting kind of scared. And then, and then all the Texans telling me, oh, don't worry about it. That's so far away. Like where, you know, <laughs> definitely perspective for fear, I suppose. <laughs> I can tell you this. I fear fire over tornadoes now. I, I promise you that. So, um, oh my goodness. Okay, let's let's jump ahead to a new lesson. There's there's so many to look at that are so interesting, especially this next one because of this language that you use called a wider risk surface. So, can you speak to the, this lesson that risk leaders have to adapt for a distributed workforce and a wider risk surface? What you know? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, you know, severe weather events are just getting there, you know, they're, they're in more places faster at a wider scale. At the same time, all of a sudden you went from having, let's say you have 500 office locations around the world to now having, you know, 10,000, 50,000, if you add all the homes of all your employees or the apartments or wherever there are. And it's not like this clear cut line, right? It's people are doing this hybrid thing. They're going to go into the office for or, you know, a couple of days and then go back home and they're all on different schedules. And how do you know where they are? You can see where they're badging in at the office, but they're not badging in at home. And, you know, where do you draw the line on duty of care? And, and I think that is a, a huge challenge. And I think, you know, it, it really kind of does, you know, reopen that question of duty of care. And, you know, it becomes more of a shared responsibility across the individual and the company. Uh, and, and so I think that is something that, uh, uh, there's so much there, and, and you know, for us, it it, do, it really does, uh, you know, bring into this idea of just being more open and transparent and sharing information uh, with individuals. Because you know, the thing, the the reality is, people can get uh, breaking news information on their own phones. Uh, some of it's uh, good, and some of it's not so good, right? Some of it is uh, off the scanner, and it may be anything. And so if, you know, you as a security, security professional are concerned that people will overreact with information that you share, well, they're already getting information that is probably much lower quality than you would share with them. Uh, and so how do you kind of work in that new environment where, you know, let's not, you know, should we route some of the information we're getting to them in real time? Should we encourage employees to, you know, to give them opportunities to download third-party apps that that are just, you know, to be good uh, and you kind of enable them with other sources of information that tend to be higher quality? Um, it is an interesting, it's really, I think that the line is shifting and I think everyone are trying to figure out where this will land. I just want to echo something you said, because I, I love the point that you made earlier about the importance of clarifying information. I mean, you're totally right. Everybody has so many, so much information at their fingertips these days. People have their own sources. So, you know, not um, try, trying to hold stuff back from people is obviously is not the right way to go because they're going to access the information. So what role can we play as risk and intelligence practitioners in, in clarifying that for them, making sense of it, um, I think is a really important lesson that you brought up. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Corey, related to this, I want to read the following quote from the uh, upcoming report. Historically, companies have controlled access to crisis information, but as employees become more mobile and distributed, empowering them with their own high-quality information helps everyone become more resilient. Empowering employees with their own direct information access can be unsettling, and security teams have resisted it for fear of people overreacting. Um, we kind of just touched on that, but let's go a little deeper, because I think um, – I think it's really important to talk about this and specifically it's an outdated need to know paradigm. And, you know, even 
even in the public sector, I've seen it too, where people are saying, let's, let's keep it internal. But when you keep it internal and it, there's, there's holes and it leaks out, it just adds to confusion and chaos. Well, what's your take? Yeah, I, you know, I have a story to tell. I, there was um, when I was back at Breaking News, there was the the Boston bombings, as, as I think all of us remember. And uh, in the wake of that event, we we traveled to Boston as part of an online news association event where they they asked news consumers who were Boston residents, how did you find out about the bombing and how did you track? If you remember, it was, just like, it was so chaotic uh, during those couple of days there. How did you track this this situation on social media versus the news organizations that you were relying on? And I. I asked, I said, you know, here's my question. If you see something happening on Twitter and the Boston Globe doesn't have it, what do you assume about the Boston Globe? And the answer was, well, they don't know about it. I said, well, wait a minute. You, you, so you think the Boston Globe, which has like reporters everywhere, it doesn't know about these huge explosions that just happened at the end of the marathon. Oh, no. And so I think that that for me was a powerful wake up call. And, you know, for journalists, we typically don't publish something until we've verified it. We hold it back and we work on it. We've heard about it. We saw it on Twitter. We're working on it. But every, you know, a lot of the, especially younger folks assume that we don't know about it, which is not a good impression to have. And so we started at Breaking News doing something we call the editor's notes. We do it at Factual as well, where we'll say that, hey, we see that this thing may be happening. We see it on social media and we're working to verify it. And that lets people know that we know about it, but doesn't verify it by, by, you know, saying that it exists on, on social media. And so it's kind of like this interim way of, of recognizing it. So I think that the lessons there also apply to, to risk intelligence and corporate security, where uh, you kind of have to assume that people, if it's out there, it's out there uh, and people are going to see it. And so at least recognizing that it's out there might be a way to help uh, counter the impression that you don't know it's happening at all. Uh, and people are left to their own devices to figure out how to respond. I think that's a great lesson for everybody because I know that so many of our friends and colleagues are dealing with this in terms of somebody sees something, they get anxious, they run with it, they start sharing it with others, which just has this compounding effect, but just recognizing that something's out there. But you know what? We're going to step back for a minute. Let us make sense of this. Let us figure out what's relevant to you and how this could impact you and, and the so what. I think that's a really powerful lesson. So that's that's a great story. So I'm looking at another lesson learned from your, your thought piece. And one that's definitely near and dear to my heart is the one that's called ramp up coordination internally and externally. So what did you learn or, or I guess, what did you see during the pandemic? And is cross-functional collaboration, do you think that's the future of working in this sort of new era of global risk? Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, I think it's been... You know, COVID is one of those just unusual things where it impacted everybody uh, all at the same time. And so you were kind of forced to bring everybody together at the table. Um, and I think not everything's like that, uh, obviously. Uh, but climate change has a lot of those same uh, characteristics to it. So if there's a severe storm that, that you know, <laughs> creates a lot of damage, uh, that does impact all parts of the organization. So th th what this is, is, is really saying, Hey, what, you know, any advances that you've made in, in having people share information internally, when, when COVID begins to decline a bit, don't go back to the old way of doing things. Try to keep those lines of communication open, uh, both internally and externally with your peers, uh, because that'll pay dividends in, in the years to come. Hey, Corey, I want to pivot to another lesson learned you discussed and um, quoting it, rely on data, not politics. 
And uh, I think, unfortunately, we've seen that's kind of been heading in the opposite direction with the pandemic. And I think now, even more importantly than ever, we're starting to see how mis- and disinformation is starting to appropriate itself. Can we expect the same divisive political approach to climate change? Yeah, I think so. I, You know, it's interesting that the concept of climate change has become less controversial over time. Um, uh, you know, even there's a, if you look at the UK's uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson used to say, hey, it's, you know, what's this big snowy weather? It must be global warming. Um, and now he says, hey, I've looked at the data and I think it's legit. And here's what we need to start doing about it. So it's, you're starting to see that it's really very difficult to look at the holistic data and come back with some sort of um, obviously there's still people out there that doubt it, but where it really begins to kick in is when you as an individual have to make sacrifices, right? So what really made people angry about COVID? Well, all of a sudden there are all these, these restrictions and they had to wear masks and they had to get the vaccine and they had to do all these things. And that, that will also apply to climate change and it's a bit different, but it's, it'll be similar. And you look at, well, okay, my power went out because, you know, PG&E proactively turned it off because there's a red flag warning tomorrow. Uh, and that just keeps happening. And, oh, wait a minute. I have, there's now a restriction that I can only uh, use 50% of the water. So I can't shower every day now. I can't water my lawn. Uh, you know, oh, now there's like a some, you know, sustainability tax or something has been added. Uh, so you can just imagine all the things that will kick into play, especially in parts of the U.S. and the world that have uh, under particular climate pressure and what behaviors have to change. And then that's when the political polarization begins. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm hoping we're just kind of going through a, a growth stage right now where everyone's going to have to get acclimated to that. But uh, I think you nailed that. And when it comes to making data-driven decisions, where does benchmarking fit in? And, and what can we do to take a more data-driven approach when trying to assess these things as risk? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see, like, um, y- y- so, you know, a lot of companies over COVID created their own dashboards that pulled in, you know, Johns Hopkins data and uh, CDC data to create uh, different scoring systems for whether or not they should have, you know, return to work or keep offices open uh, in all different parts of the world, which is extremely complicated because not only every country had a different thing, but every state and every city and every county and it just kind of a nightmare. So, uh, you know, this kind of era of like, well, we'll just follow what the government tells us is kind of doesn't work anymore. Yes, we still need to follow the law. But we also need to have some sort of internal methodology by which we can make decisions. Otherwise, we'll just be frozen if we're just going to be waiting for the you know, which way the wind is going to blow on with a you know the politician in X region, X state. Uh, then we'll just our employees are going to go crazy. So uh, I you know it's these it'd be interesting to figure out where these dashboards evolve to next, right? Um, wouldn't it be cool if there was some sort of common shared um, methodology across? companies that perhaps share the same, maybe all retailers, for example, share some sort of common uh, data methodology. Maybe they make their own decisions on what the triggers are, but they agree on sort of the general framework of it. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, that's something to me that um, sounds like a fair amount of work, but companies did do a lot of work in creating these dashboards to begin with. And if they were collaborating uh, more together, perhaps that's something that they could, uh, you know, at least share some, some basic framework. Yeah, and I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, that there's so much benchmarking going on these days. There's so much collaboration. So I, I, I love that idea, and I, I certainly think it's reachable. Um, another thing that you just said that really sort of 
sparked my attention was this um, these warnings about climate change of what could happen. So maybe messaging that's going out saying, hey, FYI, we're going to have to shut off your power tomorrow from, let's say, nine to five, or you can only use 50 percent of the water. That brings me to, I think, what is the final lesson, which is around the need to deliver tailored and transparent reporting. And I just think this is a good segue because if I heard that type of messaging that you just said, very clear, very concise, very meaningful, and I am definitely going to comply. But, you know, for everybody listening, we all know that communicating risk and communicating uncertainty is is definitely one of the hardest things that we do. But we're storytellers, so we have to do a good job at it. And uh, so what did you learn and what advice can you maybe give us so we can become more effective storytellers around risk? Yeah, it's really, you know, the experts will say, be transparent and be open. Um, Say what you know, say what you don't know. Uh, and, and if it's not completely certain, don't lock yourself in a corner, right? So a lot of the early messaging on COVID, for example, was uh, if you get vaccinated, you won't get sick. You won't get infected with, with COVID. If you wear a mask, you won't. It's, they're just completely black and white binary, uh, where in the reality, it reduces your risk of. Uh, and so it's very hard to unwind that once that's that's put out there and you know people change it. Okay, I'll get vaccinated now because I'm sick of COVID and never want to get it. And then they get vaccinated and then they get COVID. What happened? Uh, and so... I think really it's so if you look at the weather forecasting is kind of a, a, a model, right? Uh, you have a meteorologist that comes on news and says, Hey, we're going to have a 30% chance of snow tomorrow. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, zero to three inches. Um, and people are used to that. People, you know, not, they'll still call sometimes the meteorologist and complain is you didn't say it was going to do this, but the, the models there, the, the language is there where people sort of understand that there is an uncertain range and uncertainty range, but there has been nothing like that for COVID. And that's, I think, been very difficult because people have just sort of grappled with how do we just, how do we in a common way communicate that uncertainty for that? Now, when we move into the world of, of climate change, it gets tricky again, because how do you forecast sort of the extremes of things that tend to be less known? But I, I think forecasting is getting better um, where we will be able to catch a lot of this. But then it's, you know, from a communication standpoint, it's tying it back through and say, hey, we need you to t- do this individually to help prevent that and do it in a way that really is compelling. And that's the challenge. I mean, it's, it's probably the most challenging thing there is. Yeah, I was just I was sitting here. I I don't know why I had this epiphany, but what you said in terms of the analogy with the weather person and a 30 percent chance. I mean, we're intelligence practitioners are used to, I think, speaking on degrees of certainty and the fact that that never happened with covid. I don't know why that just hit me like a a truck. Um, I, I think that's brilliant, but we've never seen that. I've never heard that. So, yeah, I love that. Go ahead. You know, that might be. It, where the world is headed, right? Where, you know, there is kind of a COVID forecast. Um, there was a study that came out the other day about the seasonality of, of COVID based on temperatures. And uh, it's really fascinating. There is, there's a lot of connection there. So you can imagine kind of like having some sort of COVID forecast on your phone that's, you know, that lets you see what the risk is. And therefore you can make a decision whether or not to wear a mask to the supermarket today based upon the change in risk. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be great to figure out some sort of common methodology to, to communicate that. Yeah. 
Hey, Corey, I had, a, I had a question, more broad question, Ryan and I talked about before the show, and we're, we're definitely dying to hear your opinion. When it comes to the topic of vetting sources, you know, I think that's something when you're when you're in the intelligence community, it's it's rightfully so an obsession. How do we get to the truth and verify this information is accurate? And, uh, you know, I think now in today's world with everything going on with mis and disinformation, whether it's covid or geopolitics you know just, just reaching out on your you know your career in journalism how what are some tips that you might be able to share with everyone on on how to how to best vet assets and sources that you're dealing with yeah so it's a couple of things let's use covid as an example is a long-running thing um there, you know there's different dynamics for something that's been running for a while as opposed to something that just happened um but for COVID, what I've done for the Global Security Briefing, which is the the event that we hold every two weeks with Emergent Risk International, it's free and uh, it's a live event on uh, the updates. This was state of the world, but it's been heavily about COVID. Um, we've been doing this since uh, right after COVID landed in the U.S. And you know, I started with just the the sources that everybody would gravitate to originally, right? So the Johns Hopkins, CDC, uh, WHO. But as I went as we kept reporting on this, we noticed that there were certain sources that just had proven themselves. Uh, they uh, were uh, very clear and they spoke about uncertainty. They weren't saying this is definitely this or definitely that. They didn't use a lot of, a lot of hyperbolic language like, whoa, look at this thing. You know, I, I don't care about that because they're clearly interested in getting clicks and I don't, that's not helpful. Um, and looking for people that were just a little bit dry, but had that track record of, of, of being thorough and getting it right. And so over the time since we began doing the briefing into now, I've narrowed down the sources to like 2030 that are just really solid. Um, and so they've called the, how Omicron, Omicron has progressed. We did in early December, we did a briefing where we just laid out what's going to happen in the U S and we were right. And it wasn't because I'm, like a medical expert by any stretch. I just knew the sources that had been doing this and calling it correctly uh, over the past two years. And so that's one scenario, right? For something that's long running for something that just happens. It's really one technique is to get in very quickly and identify those who are uh, very, uh, who appear to be eyewitnesses and appear to be local and appear to be there uh, and lock them down. And then, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, when the rest of the world starts picking up on us and, you know, every aggregator in the world is trying to talk about it, you just ignore it. And you just take, grab those folks that you have uh, that you know are likely there. Look for commonality between them. Uh, obviously, look and see if who they are and if they're, you know, uh, if they're reporters and whatnot, give them higher credibility. But that sort of ignoring the rest of the, the world, I think, is one of the best, uh, you know, things that you can you can do. Otherwise you'll just, you'll just go crazy. So in fact, what we've done is we've gone through and nailed down sources and all over the world in all different languages uh, ahead of time, pre-vetted them, locked them down. And so when something happens, we'll go to them. Plus we'll do, you know, your, your standard internet search to find eyewitnesses on top of that. And so that helps us be able to just grapple with the situation rather than trying to drink from the fire hose of the internet. One follow up on that, because um, th that a that was awesome, and then b any advice? I had a hypothetical where um, a colleague was was telling us that uh, they they were briefing someone in the C suite on the security incident that was happening in a Latin American country, 
And the the senior senior executive was saying, well, you know, my wife is from such such and such country, and she has people on the ground. So, you know, what what's a good uh, verbal jujitsu to deal with something like Classic. that? Classic, if you could share. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you're asking me. Um, <laughs> Just walk yeah. away. Is that what you're saying? I know, you're right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, if it's a what do you say? I mean, it depends on your relationship with that person. Uh, yeah, that's, 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 you know, this will t- definitely take this into account. I mean, but I don't think it, you know, if, if it's completely opposite of what you know to be true, then uh, I prefer transparency and say, hey, you know, this is what we're seeing uh, X, Y, and Z. And this is, you know, I don't, I don't know how to square that with what your wife is you know, hearing, but um, it certainly seems to be the former rather than the latter. Yeah, Corey, I, I, I'm sure you guys have better better ways of doing with that. <laughs> no, I, I would agree. I mean, I think speaking with conviction, you know, about what you believe in based on the facts that you know and what you don't know. And and also you you hope going into that conversation that you have a little bit of an air of credibility so that you're believable. But that's that's just such a tough situation. Yeah, yeah it but, is. Um, yeah, I agree with your approach. So listen, I mean, those are amazing insights. I cannot wait for everybody to, to read this piece uh, when it comes out. So, so thank you so much for that. We're going to shift gears slightly. We just got a couple more questions and then we're going to jump into the rapid fire round, which hopefully is fun. Um, but the, the first one or one of the first two before we get to rapid fire, I mean, you, you've been around our, our field. You've been in this business for a long time. And maybe you already touched on it. I mean, I I think climate change is definitely top of mind for people. But as intelligence practitioners, risk managers, what is something that we just might not be seeing right now or just not thinking about right now that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I I you know, there's so many things. I mean, I think one of the biggest is just you can't rely on governments to, um, be sort of your guiding light. And always, I think, and I don't say that in a political way that, you know, I am about anti-regulation or whatever. It's, it's something totally different. It's something we we experienced really for the first time during COVID where companies had to make health judgment calls where your HR person all of a sudden was like the school nurse. Um, and that's just unusual. That's never happened. And so I think, you know, this is where intelligence and risk professionals can really help is figuring out how to get really solid data that you can make decisions from and then then collaborate across with peers on ensuring that, you know, if you're if you're called into question by the C-suite about why are we going at, you know this direction? Well, I mean, one of the best, obviously, counter arguments is, well, that's what, you know this company and this company, this company is doing companies that are respected in the space. So I think building up that, that in a, in a better way will, cause it's just going to be the, the political winds of change. The, the it's, it's just not going to stop. Unfortunately, it's tires so tiring, but it, it's here. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we absolutely did not talk about this answer beforehand, but I love that answer because I think it's a great testimonial to all the the intelligence and, and risk management and security programs out there um, and, and trying to help these nav- these organizations, excuse me, navigate this era of uncertainty. So I, I think that's just a great testimonial. Hey, Corey, one thing we're always trying to emphasize on TBOI is innovation. So, you know, just from your perspective, what's something you think that we as risk management professionals are are doing, but it's just not working and we're continuing to do it? 
Um, <clears throat> I might get a little bit in trouble, but a couple of things that just kind of have just bugged me a little bit. Um, one is the, there seems like a protests are um, regarded higher risk than I think they really are in the U.S. I, in other parts of the world, civil unrest is extremely high risk. Um, but I think because of the the summer protests um, a couple of years ago, I've lost all track of time. I know. Uh, I, I think <laughs> the, the the risk of what of your standard U.S. protest has become overinflated um, within security or many security organizations. And I don't know why that is. Perhaps it's because of those prior events. But to me, it's it's you know peaceful protesting is part of this country's DNA, and it's just you know the, the normal the normal day. Um, the second thing is just like this, I think it was kind of a, this single pane of glass idea. <laughs> I think until I'm getting in trouble. Um, it's, I don't, I don't fully, so from a technology standpoint, it, to me, it seems like you should hire the best tool for the job. You know, if this thing does really well, then let's get that. If this thing does really well, really well let's get that. And yes, if they talk to each other and connect each other, that's awesome. But like having one company do everything and then getting and buying into that world, it is virtually impossible for a company to be equally good at all the subset of things that that tool does. It just isn't. If you look in the history of time, that's how new startups disrupt the older companies because the older companies get really big and bulky and try to do all the things and a new company comes along and does one thing really well. And so I, I think from the, I think COVID has is, is been a, it's a good training uh, experience for, you know, if we have hybrid work environments, we have people in different places, but we spent all this money on this GSOC that's like the single pane of glass. And wow, it's so beautiful. It does all these things and it's all connected. And boy, it's all kind of stuck together now. And if we want to try to, you know, do something different, we are locked in. Um, so I think in, in the, there is a, there's a balance, right? I think you want tools to talk to each other and connect to each other in ways, but um I think there's this single pane of glass. I think what we, I like to call any pane of glass, you know, let's put it on any pane of glass uh, because you never know where you're going to be or how you need to use it. Or, you know, you just need to be flexible and, and adaptive. Yeah. We, yeah I, I, oh, sorry, Ryan, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, we certainly don't want to get you in trouble, but the reason why we have, you know, leaders, world-class practitioners on this show, such as yourself is because we need to talk about these things. And I think others want to hear these insights as well. And um, we have to keep innovating. We have to keep adapting and changing. Otherwise the field is never going to turn into a profession. We're never going to progress. So I certainly love your insights there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was, I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, I used to work for one particular boss and he'd always say, don't look for the easy button. And what he meant was pretty much what you just said, like, let's find the best in practice for each particular thing rather than just hitting the easy button that checks every box in one set. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. On that note, let's have some fun. Let's move into the rapid fire rounds. Um, I, I, we always enjoy this. So Michael, do you want to lead us off and, and, and get us going here? Yeah, why not? Cause I actually always love this question, but uh, <laughs> Corey, I think you've heard the show now before, so you can kind of jump right into it, but what's your favorite place in the world and why? Maui. That's, I know it's an unpopular answer. Um, no, good answer. No, I yeah. like I've never been there, but it sounds cool. <laughs> You've been, you got to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's you know, my, my wife's parents uh, lived in Maui when, we, when I first met my wife. And so 
um, we would spend a lot of our time over there and um, as kind of like a pseudo tourist local. And so we, that we kind of got to know the, you know, the, un, the less popular spots and such a beautiful place. It's so terribly expensive now, but you know, what a beautiful place. Oh man, it sounds awesome. It's one thing I always feel kind of missing out as an East coast guy is, uh, you know, talking to my West coast friends who always were able to bounce to Hawaii. Like we do Florida. I think it's cool. Yeah, I just noticed I'm wearing my Maui Brewing hat. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't even notice <laughs> I that. Didn't even yeah, no, I didn't try to do that. That's funny. <laughs> so kind of along those same lines, oh, you can say Maui if you want, but if there's no limitations right now, you can travel anywhere in the world. Money's not a big object. Where are you going? It's good. I don't think you'd expect this one, but Mexico. I love that country and uh, always enjoyed it. My first job in television news was a Spanish-speaking um, Univision station, and uh, I spent a, f- a little bit of time down there. Um, but now I have kids, and it's like, I don't, you know, the, the, the tourist places are great, but I like the sort of off-the-beaten-path. And as you know, the, from a security standpoint, it's always not the safest thing to do, especially traveling with a young family. So, um, but I love that country. Um, that's what I actually love about the rapid fire round is, uh, and Ryan always trying to evoke, but this is a perfect example where, you know, I had no idea you liked Mexico and, you know, my wife and I love it. We lived there for a couple of years. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. There. Yeah. Yeah. We lived there for two and a half years working out wow. of the embassy and uh, we've yeah. been there probably 20 times. So yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to talk great. about that offline, but no, cool. Yeah, absolutely. You want to hit the next one, Ron? Yeah, and I was I was just going to say you've uh, Corey, you have a kindred spirit in in Michael with Mexico. I think the three of us actually. But okay, so next question: You can choose only one news source besides factual, of course. Uh, when you wake up in the morning to better understand the world, what is it? Oh, it's uh, it's not exciting. Twitter. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got everything, yeah. right? You can learn about everything. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what is something that you wish you could be good at that you're currently not good at? Hmm. Music overall, guitar, uh, keyboards, composing songs. I, as a kid, I was, I partly because I loved all the gadgets, um, had some of the early uh, keyboards, synthesizers that came out. Uh, and it was an early adopter of MIDI. And so I had MIDI to my computer to be able to create little, you know, 80s sounding songs, but then just it sort of stopped doing it. So, but I, I wish I had kept going because then that would be a lot of fun. And it's a good, you know, it's a great stress release. And, um, you know, in our business, you always got to have some way to, to relax a bit. I honestly think deep down, we all want to be rock stars or in a band (laughs) or, you know, something because a a common answer is usually around music or singing or something that taps on creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity gene. So, okay. What book or article should we all be reading right now? Well, you know, that's a tricky one. I don't, I do read a lot and I, I get, it's, it's rare to find a book that like, you can't describe in like 20 pages. It could have been a magazine article. So it's kind of frustrating. Um, so I, I mix, I mix my reading between, I think, um, uh, really sort of human behavior, science, and then science fiction. Um, science fiction, I think if you, you know, as long as it's not the strange stuff, you can actually find a lot of um, really interesting insights of where the world could be. It's kind of an open canvas for being able to sort of, you know, think through different scenarios. So I'm reading right now. Um, yeah. Termination shock. It's a sci-fi novel by, um, 
Neil Stevenson. He's a Northwest sci-fi writer, but it's about uh, climate change. But it's a it's a long tome. It's a it's a read, so it's not like it's going to be thrilling. But it's there's some interesting concepts in there. He talks about uh, you know as he goes and you meet new people or see new people. There's an app. You go on the app and it will will tell you the person's proximity from you, what vaccination record they have, and where they've recently traveled as a way for you to sort of deem your own risk in uh, getting close to that person. I thought that was a kind of an interesting concept uh, in the book. I love that answer. Just ironically, I'm, I'm taking this professional development class on anticipatory intelligence, and there's a reading assignment. It's not a specific book, but just a science fiction book. And the idea is to just, again, tap into that creativity inside of all of us and, and make us more creative and think about things that you know we, we might not have thought of before. So I love that. Michael, do you want to finish out the last three? Yeah, I just want to comment that, uh, yeah, I appreciate that read as well. And uh, spoiler alert, we're hoping to have a uh, futurist or someone from Toffler Associates on in future episodes. So that's a good segue. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, just something we like to ask just to maybe inspire, especially uh, people thinking of work on a new skill or something. Knowing what you know now, what piece of career advice would you give yourself if you were just starting out? Relax. That's a really good one. (laughs) I like it. That should be, I'm just, I'm doing what Tim Ferriss does on his, uh, on his podcast. If anyone listens to Tim Ferriss, but I could see that on a billboard, just one word, relax. Relax. And maybe in parentheses sleep. Yeah. That would be nice too. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, who's someone you admire and why no limits? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess it's slightly political. Uh, John McCain. Um, he, and partly, you know, I, well, first of all, I think he would be fantastic to have around today as someone who could really bridge the gap in ways that others really, I don't think can, um, and just stood up for, you know, many, obviously there's bumps around the, around, but he stood up for what was right in many circumstances and, and had the respect there. But he also, he also was, a. um, it was funny. There was a reporter that stopped him in the hallway, uh, and uh, asked him, he said, hey, you know, uh, Senator McCain. Oh, because he was caught. He was caught looking at his phone during a committee hearing. That's how that started. And people are like, you know, John McCain's on his phone during, he should be paying attention. <laughs> so they like, Senator McCain, <laughs> what's, since you're, you know, you're on your phone, what's your favorite app? He goes, oh, it's the breaking news app. Oh, and no so way. It, was, it was our app. Yeah. I was like, oh, oh my wow. God. It's so awesome. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Oh, man. That is a seminal moment. That is awesome. <laughs> Sweet promo. Yeah. <laughs> Spike the football and call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last one. Go ahead, Michael. So, call to action, Corey. Um, you know, what, what do you want to get out to the industry and our peers who are just listening writ large? And, uh, you know, open mic, your floor. Oh, what? Um, yeah, I, you know, we, we publish a lot of stuff that's free because it's funny. We all came, you know, from the, the news world where we, by definition, publish everything is free. And then we went into, you know, an enterprise, you know, factual services paid. But a lot of that stuff is free, too. And so the global security briefing that I mentioned is something that's every two weeks with ERI. And they're so awesome. It's a great, a great thing. We put out um, the uh, a new thing called Benchmarker. It's a newsletter that reports on what other other companies are doing is this idea of benchmarking so you can kind of see how people are reacting uh in the area of risk uh that is also free and and non-promotional um and so yeah i think there's you know you can always um 
uh, kind of in, enjoy those free resources. And, and it's, it's, that's a lot of fun. It's for Fractal itself. You know, if you haven't seen it recently or just haven't seen it at all, we've launched a lot of new things. A lot of new things are, are launching uh, in the next several weeks. Um, so I invite you to stop by Fractal.com, take a look, and uh, you can always get a, just a demo if you want as well. I'll let Ryan close it out, but I just, I just wanted to say that uh, for everyone listening, the report coming out that we based this on, I found it very fascinating. I really recommend everyone should look. And, you know, the episode we just dropped today, um, sure, Corey, you probably haven't even heard it yet, but it was with Lisa Kaplan and uh, it was focused on disinformation, but I think it's a really good uh, one, two to put these two together because you really added uh, some great points and uh, we, we thanks thanks for coming on. Ryan? Yeah, we, we so appreciate it, Corey. I mean, is so just in terms of wrapping up, is, is factful.com the best place to, to find this information? And then, you know, how can people learn more or maybe even connect with you if they wanted to? Yeah, factful.com. Well, it's all linked there. And um, yeah, I mean, feel free to, I'm at Corey at factful.com, pretty easy. Uh, and I'm accessible. And you can always ping me there or connect with me on LinkedIn or, you know, Corey BE on Twitter. Uh, love, to, love to see you there as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was so insightful. It was great to walk through this dual disruption piece. Can't wait for it to come out. Actually, I don't know if we can talk about this, but when just rough time frame, when do you expect that to be out? Yeah, it should be about the same time that this podcast drops. So uh, just it'll be on the homepage at factful.com uh, and, and uh, ready for download. Okay, great. For everyone listening, we'll make sure to link it to this episode. You should expect that in about a week or so. Corey, we, we can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for the conversation, all the insights. Um, love to have you on again, maybe someday in the future if you're up to it, but really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thank you guys. This is a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I hopefully won't get in trouble for anything I said. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> no, you you won't. I, I think everyone will have great respect for everything that you said. And I need to go uh, check out Maui now. I'm, I'm really intrigued. I've been to multiple parts of Hawaii, but I'm look at Maui now. So thanks again, Corey. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. And we look forward to talking to you all soon. Bye everyone.